you could go ahead and grab a seat, that would be fantastic. So good to see you all. Thank you for braving the smoke out there to be with us. We're glad that you're here. Hey, go ahead and open up a Bible. We're jumping right in, okay? Mark 14, uh, verse 43 is where we're going to be. So if you brought a Bible, great. That's where you want to be. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. There are some on the seats in front of you. We won't have the words on the screen. So I just want to encourage you to jump into the book. Uh, Verse 43, we're walking through this book, as you know if you've been here for a while, little by little, walking through the Gospel of Mark, this book of the Bible that shows us the life of Jesus and his teachings and his death and and what that means. And now in chapter 14, we're far beyond the early days of Jesus' ministry, his miracles, his teachings, calling his disciples, the crowds following him. And now we're really close to the end of his life in chapter 14. We're on basically Thursday night into Friday morning uh, of Holy Week, as we might call it today. So Good Friday, his death on the cross is uh, hours away at this point. And so with that in mind, we jump in to verse 43. Would you follow along with me? It says this, Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be gathered here for a chance to worship you, to sing to you, and now to open up your word. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us, help us understand the words that we just read. By your spirit, open our eyes and our hearts to see what you want us to see, Lord, would you come and teach us and change us and transform us, Lord, by your word, for your glory and for our good. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, this week as I was preparing for this message, I came across this article online or a series of posts online that I wanted to share with you. It was people who were adults now, but writing about things they misunderstood as kids. And they were reflecting on the fact that they used to see things a certain way, but then they grew up and they learned a bit more about the world. And so they changed the way they thought about certain things. And so they wrote in these examples. I wanted to share a few with you. One of them said this, I thought cottage cheese was just like regular cheese, but made in small houses in the country. (laughs) One might assume that. Another one said, while reciting the Lord's Prayer as a kid, I always pictured God in front of an easel, 
because our Father, who art in heaven, God was doing artwork up there in front of an easel. Another one. When I was younger, I saw an accident on the side of the road, and my mom said, if you have an accident, the cops come. I thought she meant that if I peed my pants in the car, the cops would come get me. (laughs) They might. They might. And the the last one. Uh, My parents owned a business, and I overheard them discussing firing one of their employees. I was mortified that my parents would set someone on fire just because they weren't the best worker. They had a bad performance review. We're just going to have to torch him. I'm sorry. No, you see, we could go on, but there were a lot of good ones. There really were. Uh, examples of kids misunderstanding things and then later learning the, the truth or the reality about them. I'm sure you could add a few of your own to this list. And a lot of these misunderstandings as kids get sorted out as we grow and become adults. However, not everything does. And there are things that even as adults we misunderstand. This is certainly true in our spiritual lives. As we seek to follow Jesus, we easily misunderstand who Jesus is and what God is like and who we are and what God expects of us. Now, a lot of these examples we looked at, they were, they were funny, they're lighthearted, they make us laugh. But when we have misunderstandings about who God is and who Jesus is and what God expects of us, well, then the implications are, are much more serious. They have a much bigger impact on our life and on the lives of those around us. And so we're going to see in the text this morning some some serious misunderstandings. And it's going to force us to consider and hopefully avoid making the same kind of mistake. We'll jump in here in a moment. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, Last week, though, we left off. You remember Jesus and the disciples? They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's that evening, late The day before Jesus goes to the cross, they're outside the city and the disciples are falling asleep. And so Jesus says, enough, you guys can't stay awake. And here comes my betrayer. That's where we left off last week. And now, verse 43 picks up right there. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. And with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And so the scene is set here, and we've, we've really noticed for some time now how the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the chief priests, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they're against Jesus. Right? They are threatened by Jesus, and they just want to get rid of him. He's causing problems for them, threatening their power, and threatening their influence, and threatening the way they do religion and understand God. And so they've been trying to trap him and trip him up and make him look silly in public throughout the Gospels. Maybe you remember some of those accounts. And then we read in verse 1 of chapter 14 that they had this plot, a secret plan to arrest Jesus and to kill him and to get rid of him once and for all. And so now here we see their plan, this plot unfolding as they come to arrest Jesus with Judas help. But notice in the text, in verse 43, how does it describe the crowd? In verse 43, it tells us what? That they come armed with swords and clubs. 
Now, when do you typically arm yourself or carry a weapon? It's when you're expecting a fight. When you're expecting to have to defend yourself. Maybe when you're going Black Friday shopping and it's a little dangerous out there. You need to come prepared. Maybe in their case, if you're going to attack someone in battle. I mean, you send an armed crowd with swords and clubs if, if you're arresting some violent revolutionary, some militant rebel leader. And we know that that's not who Jesus is. And so already we see that these people misunderstand really who Jesus is and what he's come to do. I mean, who do they think he is? And you notice Jesus points this out in verse 48. He says, am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. Right? He looks at these guys and almost probably with a smirk on his face or maybe a deep sigh, saying, you do not understand who I am, do you? Or what I have come to do. Am I leading some violent rebellion? You think you need swords and clubs to arrest me, that I'm going to fight you and try to kill you? And he says in verse 49, every day I was with you in the temple. You could have arrested me there. I was teaching. I'm not doing things in secret, leading some violent coup against you. He says, you guys don't understand, do you? Passage continues in verse 44. The, The betrayer had arranged a signal with them. It says, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. See, the crowd arrives and Judas, one of the twelve, one of the twelve, leads this crowd right to Jesus. He'd agreed to betray him. See, it's dark out. There's a lot of guys with bushy beards. It'd be hard to identify exactly who was Jesus. So he says, hey, let's get a sign. I'm going to go kiss Jesus. And that way you crowd will know which one you need to arrest. And he does just that in this moment dripping with irony. He kisses Jesus, which would be a sign of honor, a sign of respect, devotion, love. But he uses it to betray him. And Jesus is arrested. He's seized right then in the garden. But notice in the text, it's not just Judas or or the crowds that really misunderstand Jesus. Because look what happens right afterwards in verse 47. Then one of those standing near, which is one of the disciples, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Hmm. So he's arrested, and one of his disciples right away, the Gospel of John tells us it was Peter. No surprise, right? Peter, bold, impulsive, draws his sword and and swings it at the servant of the high priest, taking off his ear, which tells us two things. First, he doesn't have very good aim with a sword because no one goes after an ear. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to show them. I'm going to take off that ear. No, no one does that. So he's he's probably swinging for his head. I mean, he's out for blood. And the second thing that tells us is that Jesus' own followers don't understand him, right? They're ready to fight. They come out swinging. They want to shed blood. 
And in the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, it'll tell us Jesus says essentially, Peter, put the sword away. That's not what we're here to do. That's not how we're going to handle the situation. And so this just drives home the point that we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, that we don't understand Jesus. We don't understand the ways of God. This is true of the outsiders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the people opposing Jesus actively, but it's true of the the disciples, his own disciples, who have been walking with him for years. Remember back in chapter 8, verse 30 to 32, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. What does Peter do then? He rebukes him. He rebukes Jesus. No, Jesus, you don't understand. That's not how this is going to go down. You're the king. You're the Messiah. What are you talking about, rejection and death? No, no, no. One chapter later, chapter 9, verse 30 to 32, Jesus tells them the same thing. I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And there it says explicitly the disciples did not understand. They didn't get it. And now here, the betrayal, the arrest, his rejection is unfolding before their eyes. And what do they do? Peter draws his sword and says, no, it can't go down this way, Jesus. You see, the disciples assume that if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's this conquering king, this savior that he says he is, then he can't be rejected and die. I mean, he's going to show military force. He's going to rule on his throne. He's going to win. The bad guys are going to lose. And so when the bad guys come and arrest Jesus, Peter fights it. He says, no, rejection, death, arrest, betrayal, can't go down this way. And so we see like those in our text this morning, that we today often misunderstand Jesus in the same way. We expect God to work in a different way than he often does. The reformer Martin Luther, nearly 500 years ago, he talked about this reality, and he explained some of the way that we misunderstand God and how he works, and this is how he put it. He said that we often embrace a theology of glory, but not a theology of the cross. Say it again. He says, we embrace a theology of glory, but we don't always embrace a theology of the cross. Here's what he meant by that. A theology of glory leaves little room for suffering, for pain. It expects strength and victory. I mean, we're serving God, and so he's going to take care of us. We're going to win. We're going to be comfortable. I mean, this is what Peter and the disciples are thinking. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king. He's going to take the throne. We're going to be his right-hand men. Things are going to be great. Up and to the right, things are going to be good. A theology of glory leaves no room for the cross, no room for suffering. And so when the hardship comes for the disciples or when it comes in our lives, we fight it. We draw our swords. 
We say, this can't be the way God is going to do things. And so when the divorce comes or the kids get sick or we lose our jobs or we lose our homes or our own health declines, we get bitter. We say, no, no, God, this isn't supposed to go this way. You're not holding up your end of the deal. Where is the glory? Where's the power? Where's the, the winning that we expected? Now, don't get me wrong. Glory is coming. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again to new life. He's ruling and reigning. His kingdom will come in full. And we will enjoy God and one another in the new heavens, the new earth forever. We have that to look forward to. But we don't always experience the fullness of that glory now. And I think we know this to be true when we look at our own lives. God does not promise us a comfortable, easy life. Now, this theology of glory, we embrace it individually in our own lives, but we also have a tendency to embrace it as a culture or as a, as a church, as Christians today. One author, Carl Truman, was writing about this. He says, in churches often... We do the same thing. We expect power and greatness and glory. And so churches indicate an attitude, he says, towards power and influence that sees things as directly related to size, to market share, consumerist packaging, aesthetics, youth culture, media appearances, swagger, and the all-around noise and pyrotechnics that we associate with modern cinema rather than New Testament Christianity. I know if I look at my own heart, that tendency can be true. In, in church world, I want to see the big. I want to see the flashy. I want to see the, the exciting. I mean, that's where God is, right? In the glory. It's so easy for us to overlook the small, maybe unseen ways that God is working all around us. See, in contrast to this theology of glory and comfort and strength, Luther talks about, as you look to Jesus and the Scriptures, you really see the theology of the cross that we need to embrace. Theology that says, well, Jesus wins, but he wins by losing. He brings life, but he brings life by dying. This is a theology where God is at work in the unseen God's at work in the suffering. God's at work in opposite ways from what we normally expect. I mean, God shows his strength in the weakness of the cross. God shows his wisdom in the foolishness of the cross. I mean, the cross, the way of the cross is marked by loss and, and pain. And yet God uses it to refine us and to shape us, and to teach us, and to change us in ways that we would not expect. The theology of the cross really forces us to rely on God, not ourselves, to rely on grace when we come to the end of ourselves and the end of our strength. And so this life, the way of the cross, it's marked by humble service, by inconvenience, often hardship. It's often unflashy, and it's often unseen as we seek to love God 
and love others, but we believe that God is present there. And that's the way Jesus went. And so we should expect nothing different. And so many of us need to exchange our theology of glory for a theology of the cross, where we say, God, we will trust you, we will follow you, we will love you and serve you no matter what comes, no matter the challenges ahead. We could say more here, but uh, we'll move on. I think hopefully you see what the text is getting at. The crowds armed with swords, they don't understand Jesus. His own disciples, Peter, he doesn't understand Jesus. He's chopping people's ears off. So let's be careful that we don't make the same mistake. Jesus is arrested. He's seized. And then verse 50, one of the most discouraging verses in the whole Bible then everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone runs away. It's the last time the disciples are all mentioned uh, together, and they're running away. So not very good accountability partners right there. They're all running away. Although a few hours earlier, they told Jesus, we'll never disown you here. Here they are, abandoning him. Now, just a, a side note, I think although this is a really dark, grim, discouraging verse, there is some encouragement to be had here because today many of us find it hard to trust the Bible sometimes. Not everyone, but some people doubt the Bible, the reliability of the Scriptures. I mean, can we really believe what the New Testament says? Can we really believe that the events depicted here actually happen this way? A lot of people have doubts and, and wrestle with that. Uh, this is one of those places that actually should encourage us and build our confidence in the reliability of the Scriptures. And here's what I mean by that. If, if the disciples or people just like later on down the road were making up these stories about Jesus, as some maybe claim that they did, don't you think they would maybe leave out some of these embarrassing details? I mean, I mean really, th think about it. Jesus is betrayed. His followers are falling asleep and chopping people's ears off and running away. And so if that was you and you were writing down this account and saying, let's, let's make something up that's really going to have some momentum in the world, don't, don't you think you'd maybe write it a little differently? Maybe leave out some of those details? Or some would say, okay, maybe they didn't just make up the whole thing later on, but maybe they, they embellished some things. You know, they, they exaggerated a little bit as the years went on. But again, if you as the author of one of these Gospels felt that kind of freedom, the freedom to exaggerate or to fudge the truth just a little bit, if you felt that kind of freedom, wouldn't you opt to leave again some of those embarrassing personal details out? I mean, you could paint the disciples in maybe a little bit better of a light. Maybe it'd be a little bit less embarrassing. Uh, the, the shame and, and dishonor that would be associated with uh, running away or Jesus being abandoned. I mean, you could have just kind of erased that if you felt that kind of freedom. But most scholars will kind of look at these details and say, well, these embarrassing details are, are there in the text. And so probably the best explanation for that is that this is actually what happened. And the authors didn't feel the freedom to, to leave things out. They felt the, the burden to accurately explain what, what happened, warts and all. 
as embarrassing as it was, this is what God did. This is what happened. And so, uh, again, I hope that we can see those things and say, yeah, that should increase our confidence in the Scriptures and the reliability of the Gospels and the eyewitnesses. As we continue in the text, you notice the disciples are running away, and there's this kind of curious incident in verse 51. Maybe you picked up on it as we read through earlier. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, it says, was following Jesus when they seized him, and he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Interesting. This unnamed man, seized by the crowd, wiggles out of his garment and runs away. I mean, I bet you didn't think that when you got to church this morning, we'd be talking about streaking in the Bible. <laughs> and here we are. This man, streaking off into the first century nights, running away with no clothes, naked as the day he was born. It's odd. And, and this is the only gospel that includes this little picture, this little event. The other ones leave it out. But Mark includes it. Interesting. It's actually led some to think that this is actually Mark himself. Mark is telling about him himself, kind of his subtle signature on the book. This unnamed disciple, he's kind of worked himself in there. We don't, we don't know for sure who this man was, who this disciple was, but that's a guess. But the point is, the point is that everyone deserts Jesus. And it's, it's shameful, right? It would bring dishonor upon a rabbi to have all your disciples flee and abandon you. That itself would be embarrassing. But here now we have this, this naked man running away. And, and again, nakedness to the Jews was quite appalling. It was quite disgraceful to be naked in public. And so this is just highlighting how badly this man wanted to get away and not be associated with Jesus. And if we think about it, it's rather ironic. Because what does Jesus tell his disciples to do? He tells them to leave everything in order to follow him. And now this man is leaving everything, including his clothes, to run away from him. Do you see? It's, it's the exact opposite of what Jesus has called a disciple to do. It's embarrassing. And there we're left with Jesus, arrested, abandoned, alone, deserted by those closest to him. And so once again, we're, we're left to consider what does this mean for us. And so often we look through the Gospels and these disciples serve as a mirror for us to see ourselves, to see our own hearts. When the pressure is applied and the crowds with their swords show up in our lives, we're often afraid of what commitment to Jesus will cost us. We're also tempted to desert Jesus, aren't we? Sometimes this is really clear and stark. Like people just, just leave the faith. Walk away from Jesus. Stop coming to church. Stop reading the Bible. Don't call themselves Christians anymore. That happens. We probably all know stories like that. Uh, sometimes, though, it's more subtle. It's more subtle people would still consider themselves Christian, but we find ourselves in situations where it's hard and we're tempted to kind of shrink back and maybe just tone the Jesus dial down a little bit and kind of fly below the radar. We're just, we don't want to talk about Jesus very much, maybe in our neighborhoods, maybe 
with our coworkers, maybe at family gatherings like Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. We, you know, if we're honest, we, we don't want to rock the boat, and so maybe just we'll keep the Jesus thing on the DL, turn the dial down a little bit, and we'll get through the holidays without any kind of big fights or any awkward tension. I feel that sometimes. It's hard. So we see our, our own tendency to, to run when the pressure is applied. Or our own tendency, sometimes we, we run not as much from danger, but we run to other things. We run to sin, right? We run to, to greed, or we run to selfishness, or alcohol, or, or pornography, or we run to uh, just our, our own selfish habits to free us from the tension or the, the burden of serving, the burden of loving others, the burden of really being obedient to what God has called us to. We run two things and we essentially say, I find more comfort, more safety, more life over here than I do standing with Jesus. That these things over here, whatever it might be for you, fill in the blank, it's better to be here with my sin and whatever that pattern looks like than it does to be with Jesus. Now, sometimes this isn't clear, again, until we're pressured, right? Right now, it's easy to sit in the room and say, I don't, I don't think I'd run away. I don't think I'd go streaking into the night if someone was pressuring me about Jesus. And yet, sometimes it's in that moment that we realize we have a propensity to, to do that when we feel the heat of the furnace. So we need to be careful. We need to be a prayerful people, people that remind one another of the gospel and who our God is to encourage one another to obedience and to walking with the Lord, to pray fervently that God would help us grow, that God would help us love Him, that God would give us the strength to be faithful to Him so that we can truly say in our hearts what we sang earlier this morning, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything I would run to. And so I'd rather suffer with Jesus than be free without him. I'd rather face death with Jesus than life without him because Jesus is better. There's good news here in the text as maybe challenging or discouraging as it's been so far. If we look here, there's good news. Look at verse 49. As Jesus is being seized, he says what? The scriptures must be fulfilled. In his arrest and in his abandonment and his coming death on the cross, he's saying what? This is all fulfilling scripture. God's work, God's word spoke of a coming king, a savior, one who would suffer for his people, one who would rescue his people from their sins. And so Jesus here in verse 49 is reminding us that in the darkness of the garden that night, in his arrest, even in his death, God's eternal plan of salvation is unfolding. These events are not happenstance, not random, unfortunate outcomes that poor Jewish rabbi got killed too soon. Oh, the scriptures are being fulfilled. This is the very plan of God, what God spoke before, and his word is now coming to pass. 
that God in his great love and mercy would send his son Jesus to bear our sins, to go to his death, to die for us, so that we could be forgiven, cleansed, renewed, reconciled to the God who loves us, adopted into his family through Jesus Christ as sons and daughters. And so the scripture tells us that all of this, the cross, his rejection, his death, ultimately his resurrection, all went according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God the Father. I hope we can take comfort in that gospel, this good news that Jesus died even for those disciples who ran from him. He died even for those crowds with their swords and clubs. He died for them. And there's good news here that even if we run and stray, and many of us have, and maybe some of us are right now, there, there is grace that welcomes us home. God, with, with open arms, says, come home because I can forgive your sins and cleanse you from all of that if you would just come and trust me. And I've seen that happen. I bet you have as well. Right? People in your life that ran from God wanted maybe nothing to do with him. And they came back. I think of my friend Eric, my friend Mark, others who now are walking faithfully with the Lord. And when they ran away, God didn't say, okay, well, we're done. Game over. You lost your chance. No, they, they came back. And his grace was still there for them to forgive them and welcome them home. And the same is true for us. And so, now, friends, we get to come to the table together. We're going to celebrate communion as a church, which is the chance to remember Jesus, his death for us. We take the elements, uh, the bread and the cup, which represent his broken body and his shed blood on the cross in our place so that through faith in him, we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And so we get to come and remember Jesus today, and we invite you, uh, even if you're visiting, uh, we practice an open table here, which means that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us. So even if it's your first time or you're not a member or anything like that, if you put your faith in Jesus, come celebrate with us. And if you're here this morning, you're not sure if that's you or you know that's not you, just encourage you to remain seated uh, and reflect on what we've talked about this morning. Uh, but I also want to encourage you, maybe if you're here and you're, you want to follow Jesus, but you haven't yet put your trust in him, today can be the day that you do respond and say, Jesus, I, I see my sin and my need for you, and I want to experience the forgiveness that you have to offer. So you can pray that right now and put your faith in him. And if you do that, let the table be an opportunity for you to respond, to come and as that first step of faith in him, receive the grace that he offers you. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for you, for your grace, for your mercy. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for dying in our place, for taking away our sins, for reconciling us to God through faith in you. We remember you now and we pray that you would encourage us as we take these elements, your body, your blood, 
Pray that it would remind us of what you've done. We love you. We thank you. And we just acknowledge we are a needy people. And so we come to the table humbled with open hands to receive. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness. In your name we pray. Amen.